we've all faced the challenge of finding the right people for our organizations. And most of us have struggled with even defining what the word right means. On today's episode, Patrick Lencioni teaches us how to get ideal team players. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 301. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. And I'm so glad that you joined in today. Today, a conversation that is going to be one that I know will stick with you and one that many of us have thought of over the years, especially if you've read the book by Jim Collins, Good to Great. Jim Collins talks about getting the right people on the bus. And many of us have heard that phrase over the years, and we've thought a lot about getting the right people on the bus in our organizations. And yet, the practical how to do that often isn't explored in as much detail. And today's guest I know is going to give us a lot of practical tips on doing that. And that is Patrick Lincioni. Pat is the founder of The Table Group and the author of 11 books, which have sold over 5 million copies and been translated into more than 30 languages. The Wall Street Journal called him one of the most in-demand speakers in America. He has addressed millions of people at conferences and events around the world over the past 15 years and been featured in numerous publications, including Harvard Business Review, Inc., Fortune, Fast Company, USA Today, and of course, the Wall Street Journal. He is the architect of organizational health, a concept that he calls the last competitive advantage in business today. And I consider him the world's leading expert on organizational health. His most recent book is The Ideal Team Player, How to Recognize and Cultivate the Three Essential Virtues. Pat, welcome to Coaching for Leaders. It's good to be here, Dave. Thanks for having me. Well, the pleasure is mine. I've been a fan of your work since you first published The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, been recommending it for years. And I, I think I've probably, I was thinking back to how many of your books I've read. I've probably read half a dozen of them now over the years. And speaking of great books, I, I mentioned Jim Collins in the intro, and I noticed that you quote him in the book and talk about his direction to us of getting the right people on the bus, which is, um, I guess, a euphemism for hiring and retaining employees who fit the company's culture. And it's a concept that's relatively simple and makes perfect sense, I guess, on its face. And yet it's often overlooked. And too many of us are hiring mostly for competency and technical skills. And that's one thing I found really interesting about this book is that the model you articulate is exactly the model your own company uses. And I'm curious, how did this model emerge and how's it worked for you? Well, you know, it came about by accident, Dave. Um, I Years ago, I wrote The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And uh, when that book came out, I remember it occurred to me, I don't know if somebody asked me at a speech or, you know, like, are some people better at this than others? <clears throat> and I was thinking, you know, I don't know. And I was busy. I, have, I had little kids at the time. I still have a few. And I was just, too, I just thought anybody can be a great team player. I don't know if anybody's really better at it. And then years later, it occurred to us that there were actually, there was an answer to that. And, and we discovered them by accident when we came up with our core values as a company. And we'd been using those core values for years. And our clients started saying, well, we want to use your core values too. And we said, no, there are core values. You can't use ours. Right. And we realized that they were attracted to them because if a person had those three values, they would actually be an ideal team player. Ah. And so that's how this book came about. 
And we, I did not think I was going to write a book about that. And one of my friends, another author, said, I think that's a book. And I said, really? And, and so we did it, and it's probably sold more in this first year out of the gate than any book we've ever had. Oh, interesting. The three virtues you present in the book that the ideal team player should have are to be humble, hungry, and smart. And I'd like to ask you about all three. But let's start with humility, since you call that one the single greatest and most indispensable attribute of being a team player. Tell me more about that. Well, you know, the, the root of all sin is pride. I mean, pride is the, is the downfall of, of us. And humility is the antidote to that. And I think it's one of the most, it is the most important virtue that a person can have. And it's a, it's a virtue that we need on a team as well as in life. Because if a person is not humble, it means they're self-centered and they are focused on what's in their best interest. And if you're going to be on a team, you've got to be focused on the greater good. And if a person is not humble, the best they can do is fake that. So this is the single most important attribute. It's not enough, but without humility, you have a real problem if you're hiring people that have that. It is just central to all of this. And how do you identify or even define humility when you're searching for that in a candidate or maybe even searching for that internally on the team? It's a great question because people will say, oh, yeah, it's good to be humble. What does that really mean? C.S. Lewis, the author, had a great quote. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. So it's not a lack of self-confidence. It's thinking about yourself less. And the idea is if you've got talents and we all have God-given talents, you have to understand those and actually be comfortable with those and use those well. It just doesn't mean that you get to think you're more important than other people as a result of that. And so sometimes people will look at a person who lacks self-confidence and they'll say, well, that's a very humble person because they're very demure or they, they don't think they're right or they, they give in easily. And that's not humility. In fact, that's a violation of humility. Humility is knowing what you're great at, knowing what you're not great at, using your talents to the best that you can, being comfortable with that, but, but thinking about it in the context of how you can serve others. So humility really comes down to you want to avoid people that are arrogant, people that are self-centered and needy and people that are that lack due self-confidence in the skills that they have so it can be a little bit tricky because we tend to look at personality traits rather than the virtue itself and have you found a way that is helpful for you and your team to separate out some of those personality traits and, yes. and the virtues <clears throat> yeah you know we looked at behaviors and we said, and, and this is true if you were interviewing or self-assessing yourself, Here, here's the things. People who are humble tend to compliment or praise their teammates without hesitation. They're just very quick to go, man, you're really good at that, or that was great that you helped me with that. I appreciate it. They're also quick to admit their mistakes. When they make a mistake, they'll go, oh, man, I really screwed that up, didn't I? And it's like, wow, they do that very willingly and quickly. They're also willing to do lower-level work for the good of the team, so they never think, well, that's below me. They're like, hey, if this is what the team needs, I'll do it. They share credit for team accomplishments. They rarely, after a, a successful endeavor or an event, they rarely talk about themselves. They talk about the general team. They acknowledge their own weaknesses, which gets it's similar to mistakes. And here's an interesting one that I really rely on. They offer and accept apologies graciously. They're quick to say, hey, I'm sorry I did that wrong. And they're quick to forgive others if they say they're sorry. And so we build in to interviewing and self-assessment those quest, those behaviors, because if a person does all those things, it's a really good indicator that they're humble. Mm. And, and I want to ask you more about the interviewing piece in a bit, because that's something that I know a lot of folks are going to be wondering about. And, and I'm also 
guessing that there's probably people listening thinking like, okay, you know, I, I want to look for that when I'm hiring someone. But how do I how do I deal with the people that I already have with on the on the team who may not be that? And I, I guess this kind of gets back to what you mentioned earlier. Is is this something that we can all learn to be an ideal team player, or are there things that are just inherent around this that are hard to teach? I don't think they're inherent. You know, we call them virtues because a person is not born with virtues, they develop them. And so I have a very optimistic sense that people can do this. But sometimes if they've never been introduced into one of these concepts, it's tough later in life. But what we say is just help people self-assess because if they have the desire to be better, they're usually going to get there. So like one of the most important things we do, Dave, is if we work with a team, we'll just say, hey, everybody – Write down, humble, hungry, smart, which of these is your best, your natural best, second, or third. If you're great at all of them, one of them's still going to be third. If you're not so great at all of them, one of them's still going to be third. So it's not very threatening. And then we go around and say, what's your third? And everybody's got a third. And we say, so get together with the other people who share that third and brainstorm about how you can get better. And it is crazy how they can focus on behaviors that they need to do to improve in these areas. And I do think a person can improve in these areas. I think it helps if early in life you've been introduced to them. Mm, Interestingly, of the three values, and this surprised me, but of the three values, hunger is the hardest one, I think, to teach later in life. Let's talk about hunger. Tell us more about what you mean when you say hungry. This is someone who just has a work ethic, that they're not easily pleased. They don't stop things short or do the minimum. They're always looking for more ways to contribute and how to go above and beyond. And it's not because they're going to get fired if they don't do that. It's because they feel like that's just who they are. They've always, and, and this is the one that I find kind of early in life, you have an attitude of taking shortcuts and doing the bare minimum, or you're like, if I have to do more to make sure this is good, then I want to do that. The questions we look at is like, you know, do they have passion for the mission of the team or the organization? Do they have a sense of personal responsibility for the success of the team? If the team fails at something, do they feel bad? Or do they go, well, my part of the project went well. Do they contribute to and think about work outside of office hours? Now, this is not about workaholism, though, Dave. This is about people who just believe their work is important, but they don't define themselves by their job. Do they take on tedious or challenging tasks when necessary? And do they look for opportunities to contribute outside of their area of responsibility? Do they volunteer and say, hey, is there anything I can do for you? And I've worked with people who just did what was required, and that's all and really had no interest in going above and beyond. I know that sounds like a cliche, but hungry people go above and beyond. Yeah, well, and that's actually raises something I was I was interested when I read the book, I was thinking about this work-life balance and you you talk about that in the book and that, you know, this isn't just you know, this isn't like I'm willing to, you know, work 80 hours a week uh, as far as being hungry. And and I know that a lot of us and and I've I've struggled with this too in my career is we do tend to sometimes identify ourselves with our roles and our titles and our position in the organization or in our industry. Where do you find that healthy healthy balance, Pat? Do you do, do you find things that really work for the leaders that you found have been able to navigate this most effectively of just how they frame this and being hungry at the same time being healthy about it? You know, I can speak for myself, and I think for a lot of it, it, for me, faith and family come first, and that that means I have to provide for my family and I have to care about the people I work with, but I cannot let my work hurt the people that I'm first in charge of and in my primary duty in life. And so what I find is that when people have a really unhealthy home life or faith life, they use work to distract themselves from that. And that's when it gets unhealthy. 
there are days when you have to work really long and there are days when you have to travel and be gone. I try to minimize that, but none of us have complete control over that. So it's a, the, the balance comes not just in terms of adding up the number of hours, but do you think this is an important part of your life? But if it's too important, you know, if, if it's like an athlete. We, we've seen great athletes in life. And, and, you know, and I will say Tiger Woods, he's been in the news lately, poor guy. And I, he was raised to think that golf was everything. And as a result, he's hurt everything around him to be the best golfer ever. And that's unhealthy. Compare that to somebody who says, I love my job, but I know there's limits to how much I can pour into that. That's not a lack of hunger. That's, a, that's actually a responsible understanding of their place in life. So that's probably the best way I can describe that. And I have worked with clients that were workaholics. And that's not sustainable usually. Usually they're, they're hiding from a fear or a brokenness that they haven't dealt with. Well, let's look at the third one, which is smart. And unless people have read the book, I think some people might hear the word smart and misinterpret it. And you're not really talking about raw intelligence. For you, what does smart mean? Smart is really common sense around people. I I avoid saying emotional intelligence, which is, it's related to that for sure. But when we say smart, it's like, are they just good at dealing with people and they understand how to interact with others? And we've been calling it humble, hungry, and smart for years. And so when we wrote it, people thought, I mean, a couple people said, why don't you change that? And I said, because if we just call it emotional intelligence, they're going to think it's more sophisticated than it is. Is this just a person who, who understands how their words and actions impact others? It's, it's really common sense around human beings. And, and the kind of things that people do that, they usually have empathy. They, they, they actually have an interest in other people's lives, not just their own. They listen. They're actually a pretty active listener. They adjust their behavior based on the situation in the room. And those are behaviors you can actually look for, whether you're interviewing or whether you're developing somebody who works for you. Are they just commonsensical about how they deal with people? This is one that can be developed. It's not easy, but it's also the least important of the three, I find, in that if a person lacks this one, I have a lot of patience with them to teach them. Because if they have a strong work ethic and they're not egotistical, man, I just love them. And occasionally a person like this needs to be treated like a puppy where you roll up the newspaper and whack them on the nose <laughs> and say, hey, you, you didn't need to do that. Yeah. But because they're humble and hungry, they're usually glad to be whacked on the, news, on the nose with the newspaper and they want to get better. Well, and I'm curious how you navigate that, because I know a lot of leaders listening are always looking for ways to develop those skills in people who are real great contributors to the organization. What are are some of the things that you find that you and your organization do in order to mentor people and bring them along that path of being smarter? You know, I I love the question because sometimes we're we're looking for a program, like what do you sign them up for? What book do they have to read? Yeah. And I think, and there's, there's good things out there, but the primary mechanism for improvement is coaching, and it's real-time coaching from the very people that work with you. So in other words, remember that exercise we talked about where people get together and they say, what's your third out of three? Mm-hmm. So let's just say mine is smart. And I say, you know, you guys, and everybody agrees, yep, that's your thing. I Sometimes I say things without thinking or I don't realize how people are going to respond. And then we say, okay, everyone here at the table, your teammates are going to coach you. And when we're in a meeting and we see you do that, we will call it out. And it's not going to be easy to call out but you're asking us to do it. We want to get better. And we're really letting you down if we don't. Now, of course, this starts with the manager. And if I'm a good manager, and I'm good in many ways, but I'm not great in others, but I owe it to my employees to say, hey, you said you wanted to get smarter. Whenever I see you doing that, I'm going to remind you. And even when it's a little bit painful, I'm going to remind you. 
eventually when we do that, and this might be the most important part of the book, but it's, it's very subtle. And that is when leaders are willing to remind people every time they see them do something wrong in one of these areas, one of two things is going to happen. One, they're going to improve because they're going to go, hey, I have nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. I really have to get better. Or they're going to decide, I don't think I can do this. and I'm going to opt out. Both of those are preferable to what usually happens where somebody says, I haven't really talked to them, but I'm going to let them go. I'll call HR and the lawyer and we'll work things out. It's bitter. It's like constantly remind people that they need to get better in an area. And usually they're going to get better or they might decide, you know, I can never be humble. I need to go work someplace else. It's amazing how often we hear from experts on the show that talk about coaching. And I don't know, maybe it's confirmation bias since the show has coaching in its title, but yeah. uh, but there's the courage to to show up and to interact and to handle those situations that are sometimes tough. And one of my favorite sections in the book, you title Scare People with Sincerity. And mm. you point out that a lot of people will try to get a job even if they don't fit the company's stated values, but very few will do so if they know that they're going to be held accountable day in and day out for the behavior that violates those values. Tell exactly. me more about that. That's fascinating. Well, I, you know, I think when we're interviewing people, so, so here's what happens. There's an interviewer and an interviewee, and we're sitting there, and like, let's just say I decide as a manager, we've done all the interviewing with as a team, and we're pretty sure this person's good, but I'm, there's this one last thing. I, I don't think that they, they lack it, but if I had a question, it would be that one. A great thing to do at the end of that process is to say, okay, Fred, here's the deal. You seem like you're a good fit here. I just want you to know we are so serious about this hunger thing that if you don't have that, and that could be of humble, smart, or whatever your core values are, if you don't have that, you're really going to dislike working here because we live that so much that it's going to be uncomfortable for you. You're not going to enjoy your job, and we're probably not going to enjoy you. But if indeed, as it seems to me, you, you do have that hunger, then I think you're going to love it here. So what do you think? In other words, you want somebody to, to say before they join, listen, I don't think I'm going to succeed here. It, imagine if you know, Nordstrom is a great example. Imagine saying to somebody, okay, we're, we think we're going to hire you, but let's get one thing clear. If you don't like to be really nice to difficult customers, and if you don't like to take back their clothes, even when it was their fault, something went wrong. And if that's really uncomfortable for you, like being somewhat submissive to a customer, you're going to hate working here. So this would be the best time to opt out. Mm. Too often, we don't let people know that we're serious about this. And so they can either change and opt in, or they can decide to avoid the situation. And we, we make the interview process too much about courting, like we're trying to convince them to join, and they're trying to convince us that we should hire them. So I say, Get really clear with people of what kind of person is going to enjoy that job and what kind isn't. And oftentimes, people will opt out on their own. Yeah, no, it makes a ton of sense. And uh, and to go back to your previous point, too, is then to actually do that, then to actually follow through and to have those courageous conversations and to make it uncomfortable if they're not following through on what they've committed to do. Absolutely. One of the biggest misconceptions that leaders have is that they shouldn't have a lot of uncomfortable conversations. And pretty much great leaders should enter the danger, as we say, every day. That's where good things happen when they say, you know, I, I, might, I think I need to have a conversation with this person about this. It's going to be uncomfortable. That's probably the right thing to do. And too many leaders, people that will work hours and hours and make great sacrifices in their life, draw the line at having uncomfortable conversations, usually with the people who report directly to them. And it's a killer in an organization. 
the section of the book that captivated me the most was the section at the end about the interviewing process you use mm. and how your organization and you screen for the three virtues when you're hiring. And you've talked a little bit about that, but it's featured extensively in the fable as well. And I've got a couple of questions for you on this. Yes. First, how does your team do this? Like, How do you actually utilize the interviewing process to screen for these virtues? Well, the first thing we do is we're intentional going into the interview saying, okay, we, we know what competencies or technical skills they need to have. That Usually that's a pretty easy thing to figure out. But then we say, okay, let's see if they're going to fit here, if they're going to be a good team player, humble, hungry, and smart. So we go in with that in mind. Rather than having every person do an interview and then debriefing after every all six people have interviewed the person, we, we let the first two or three people do the interview and then we, we regroup and we say, so what do you think? Humble, hungry, and smart. And the two people go, definitely humble. I'm pretty sure they're, they're hungry. I'm not sure how smart they're. Then the next two people go and say, okay, we're going to look for those things in particular. And when you get to that last interview, you go, okay, we're, we're, we're really solid on these. Let's drill down on this. So, so in other words, you're, you're being very intentional about this rather than generic. And that is increasing the likelihood of it. In addition to doing that, then we'll get in a room together with the person. We just did this yesterday. We interviewed a person and we had six people in there at once. Afterward, when we debrief, we're debriefing on exactly the same conversations. So we're helping one another interpret what we just saw because we've interviewed people before and someone came out of the, 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 the group interview and said, boy, that person certainly wasn't humble. And the other people were like, what do you mean? They said, well, did you see when he said this? And we were like, oh, no, that wasn't – that was not what he meant. What we heard is this. And the person like, oh, wow, I'm so glad I mentioned that because here I was thinking when, when you have a group of people doing it at the same time – they're going to be able to debrief in a much more effective way. Then the other thing we do is we, we, if we do have any questions, we ask questions again and again. We just don't stop and say, well, he gave a good answer. We're going to assume that's true. If we have any doubts, we're going to probe for more. I call it the law and order school of interviewing. And that's where if you ask the same question three times, like on the TV show, they, you know, like you say, did you kill her? No. Did you kill her? No. Did you kill her? Okay, I killed her. <laughs> and, <laughs> right. and if you interview someone and you're like not sure about something and you ask in three different ways over the course of the interview, they usually come to tell you the truth. And especially if you say, hey, if I talk to your boss or one of your colleagues, what would they say about you in regard to this? And it's crazy how people will come clean when you ask them for another person's opinion about them. So we just say, just be persistent and never give up. So, so it's team interviews, it's multiple interviews with debriefs and probing for things. And it's, if you have any doubts, continue to probe. And, um, and what we find is it becomes very, very reliable. Too often though, what we find people doing is they're, they're interviewing in silos. So there's no cross communication until the very end. They're looking for technical skills. And, and one other thing they do, Dave, is we tend to do these standard interviews where somebody's sitting across a desk. I say get them out of the office and take them for a ride. Go run an errand with them. Take them to soccer practice with you and your kids and see how they handle people. Do weird things to see how people deal in real situations. If people will say, I don't have time for that, the cost of hiring the wrong person is just too great not to take the time. I have a friend, I'll, one more quick story. She has her own organization and she hired this woman who had all the right technical skills. And, they, and of course, they were desperate to hire somebody. Well, a year later, they were letting her go. They had lost two executives because of this hire. And they were paying a ton of money in severance. 
And my friend said to me, you know, Pat, if I had just taken her shopping, I'd have seen all of these behavioral issues. Oh, interesting. So when you all have done that and yeah. gone out and taken like someone to a soccer practice or gone shopping, what, what have you noticed, either good or bad, that's, that's helped inform the decisions you make from a hiring standpoint? Well, you kind of see what their emotional intelligence is, certainly, and whether or not they're, they're mastered the art of having an interview or whether they know how to deal with people in different, different situations. So, you know, do, can they have a conversation with a parent or, or with a clerk in a store or with somebody else in a way that demonstrates that they know how to deal with people? You can kind of also see, do they dive in and do they, do they take things seriously? And you can kind of tell if they're other people-centered or if they're self-centered. So we got to get out of the typical, like, tell me about your last job and what about these skills and where do you want to be five years from now? And, and we got to just I get messy. Somebody once said the best way to interview is to fly cross-country and back with somebody. And maybe that's too expensive and too time-consuming, but there's certainly a lot of things we can do in between. But when you think about how expensive it is to make the wrong hire, like you just said, maybe we should be doing that, right? Well, I, that's, I'm so glad you said that, Dave, because when I talk, I'm like, okay, that sounds crazy, but it would probably be cost-justified. Because, <laughs> man, I tell you, by the time you get back, you're going to be like, I'm going to see that guy again or that gal again, or, man, I hope I never run into them again. And yet we shortcut the process thinking we're being efficient, but it's just not effective. I'm a big believer in effectiveness over efficiency. It's one of the screening tools I actually use for thinking about having guests on the show is, you know, is this someone, if I look at their videos and listen to some audios they've done, so I think of like, would, would I be comfortable sitting on a plane with this person for an hour or two? Because if I'm not, the audience sure isn't going to want to listen either. So it's fascinating. Exactly. Uh, and, you know, it, you mentioned silos a minute ago, too. I mean, that, that really strikes me as something that most organizations get wrong is, you know, people go off on their own, they do the individual interviews or the group interviews, and then, you know, everyone reconvenes a week later as a committee or as a team. <laughs> And the thing that really struck out to me in the book, too, is just how much active dialogue is going on during the day-long interview, uh, during breaks, between interviews. And so each interviewer then goes in with a strategy of like, okay, I didn't hear this in the last interview. What are we going to say in the next conversation so we can get some clarity on that? Right. It's about being super intentional and a little nervous. When you interview, you should be like, I'm concerned that if we make the wrong hire, this is really going to hurt our culture and our organization. So go in there and be just be more attentive to details when you're interviewing people than you are when you're trying to close a sale. But I, I have to tell you, I think that even today, I can't believe it's been 30 years since I joined the workforce. Even today, I find most interviewing is done without rigor and without a common intent. And that's where everybody goes off and does their own thing and says, well, I liked her. Well, I didn't like her. Well, why? What does this have to do with what we're trying to interview for? So we have to be super clear about what, what it is we're looking for and then be very rigorous about finding that. Okay. So now we, that we've been talking on interview strategy for a few minutes, I've, I've probably lost count on how many times I've heard from guests who've appeared on the show on how even the best interviewing tactics are at best, marginally helpful in identifying the right people. And there's certainly a lot of people out there saying that spending a lot of time on interviewing is basically worthless. Clearly, that's not been your experience. And so I'm, I'm curious how you explain the divergent thinking on this. Okay, so there's two things. First, are all the people interviewing looking for the same thing? Or are we allowing people to have different standards? So that's the beauty of like for us, humble, hungry, and smart. I don't care what your personal preferences are. This is what our organization looks for. So if we're not on the same page around what those things really mean, then of course it's not going to work. 
And then the second part is, are we being rigorous about the behaviors we're seeing and whether those are good indications of those three things? So if we're either not on the same page or we're not rigorous, it is absolutely not going to work. I think people are usually not even on the same page. One of the reasons why I think this book has been so popular, and I talked to a number of interesting people recently who have who've had changed completely their hiring criteria is because they don't actually define what a great candidate is the same way. And they read this and they go, here's the three things. Here's the definitions. Everybody read this. From now on, this is how we're going to go about this. And so just, just getting them on the same page is, is half the battle or more. And I think usually we allow everyone to define what they think a good team member is going to be. Yeah, and it's something I missed when I picked up the book too. I didn't really expect it to be about strategy for hiring and interviewing. And when I finished the book, I was like, wow, there's a lot here. That next time someone's asked me a question on this, I'm going to be referring them that way. So yeah, good stuff. Um, I like to have conversations about failures and mistakes on our show. So we're all yep. learning from each other. And you know, we all recognize that the experts mess things up too. What's the biggest failure in leadership that you've had? Wow. I mean, <clears throat> I think if we're not failing a lot, we're probably not trying things and we're not human. I mean, it's like I'm a parent. I have four kids. And I love them dearly and I've made many mistakes. And um, that's how you get better. But so the probably the most interesting one I made was years ago, before I started my consulting firm, I was an executive in a company and I hired somebody who really worked hard and got a lot done. And I, even back then, I was saying, it's all about teamwork, you guys. It's all about teamwork. It's about selflessness, and it's about the team. And this woman was not a great team player, but she got so much done. And she was very bright, and so, but she did not fit my core values. So I did what any good manager would do, and I, and I promoted her, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because she got a lot of work done. And, yeah. and luckily, the people on my team knew me well enough to, to be able to challenge me, and two people quietly came to me and said, you know, you keep talking about teamwork, but she's not a team player, and you just promoted her. And I was like, oh, that was stupid. And so what I did is I worked with her to try to get her to change her behavior. It was very clear that she couldn't. And I helped her find a job in another part of the organization did not have the same requirements in terms of her behaviors. And you know what happened, Dave? The performance of the people in my department went through the roof when she was gone. Mm. And so the, the mistake I made is I didn't actually understand the opportunity cost of having somebody who didn't live the values. And that probably went a long way toward me developing this model. Because if I don't know what I'm, what, what, what I'm really looking for and I'm not true to that, people aren't going to buy in. And then I'm going to get huge problems around performance. So that was probably the most egregious mistake I made. But it's only one I've made many since then. Yeah, it's uh, like the best leaders seem to be failing a lot and failing fast. So they're learning and growing and uh, and then sharing those failures with others. Thank you so and much for sharing yours with ours. Sure. And life is messy. And I think if we try to take the messiness out of it, we really lose our opportunity to grow. Oh, amen um, to that, brother. Amen yeah. to that. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, resources, I'd love to hear more about the hub you've got on your website because you, you're doing something new that I think would be really helpful to people in addition to the book. Yeah, we have this thing. We, we decided we wanted to put out more content. You know, writing a book every couple of years or three years wasn't, and people say, what else you got? And we said, well, we have a lot of little thinking on this and that. So we launched this thing called, it's free. It's called at tablegroup.com forward slash hub. And it's, we got new content every week, some short stuff like little nuggets, horror stories from our, from jobs that we've had, really interesting insights into small ideas. And then we write essays today. I just wrote one about 
why 360 feedback doesn't work oftentimes and what a better alternative is. We profile leaders, like I profiled Alan Mulally from Ford, who has become a friend of ours, who turned around Ford years ago. They're struggling again with, under new leadership. And, and, and we write essays and we have other tools and tw- Twitter stuff on there. It's just a place to go. We call it the hub because we want people to come there for anything they want around organizational health. And there's places to comment. We're kind of trying to create an ecosystem for people interested in this and people have responded really well. So I'd encourage anybody who who's interested to go check it out. Fabulous. Well, I think it's going to be a great resource for our audience. I'm going to get it in the show notes in this week's uh, weekly leadership guide for everyone oh, who's uh, subscribed to that as well. And uh, yeah, I noticed you're doing some really practical things as far as um, even talking about current events. And I noticed you wrote a story about United Airlines recently and just some of the challenges they're facing and how that relates to organizational health. So, uh, so absolutely, yeah, it's good good stuff. So uh, definitely- you know, I love your stuff, Dave. It, you said something about practical authenticity is something you aim for in all of your work. Yeah. I think that's that that would fit right well with our company. We try to make everything practical and very real, and not not just theoretical, but but something that people can use. And um, and so I think that's what people will find on the hub and hopefully in our books and our website and all that stuff. Well, Pat, speaking of practical, this has been super helpful for me, and I know it's going to be helpful to our listening audience too. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. it it's been a blast. I appreciate it, Dave. You're really good at this. Patrick Lencioni is the author of The Ideal Team Player, How to Recognize and Cultivate the Three Essential Virtues. Thanks, Pat. Thank you, Dave. God bless. If you've been listening to the show for a bit, you know I'm a big believer in getting a lot of great practical advice, but also in building great community. And I am going to be in San Francisco up on Thursday, June 29th, and I hope you will join me live for a free meetup that I'm hosting in South San Francisco that evening. If you're in San Francisco or in the Bay Area, please uh, consider joining us Thursday, June 29th, 2017. It is a free event. Uh, However, it's limited seating for 30 listeners because of the location we have. If you're interested in finding more, go to coachingforleaders.com slash San Francisco. That'll give you everything you need to know. Based on how many people have RSVP'd so far at the time I'm recording this, I am guessing we will fill uh, by the time the event goes live on June 29th. And it's going to be a great opportunity for you to interact with me live. Uh, We're going to do some Q&A. We're going to have some uh, fun exercises, give you a chance to meet other folks in the San Francisco area. So again, if that is you, go to coachingforleaders.com slash San Francisco. And I really look forward to meeting you on Thursday, June 29th. And while you're online, if you haven't already, especially if you're not in the San Francisco area, I hope you will activate your free Coaching for Leaders membership. That's going to give you access to a whole bunch of things, both now and in the future. Uh, And especially, it's a start for the 10-day audio course titled 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead. I have taken the lessons from the experts that have been on the show for the last five, six years, and I've distilled it down to the 10 essential lessons that I think are most important for you as a leader. If you'll give me 10 minutes a day for 10 days, I'll help you to get the most immediate practical actions to lead better. In addition, when you activate your free membership, you'll get the weekly leadership guide and also access to the entire podcast library searchable by topic. And you can access all of that just by going to the main page at coachingforleaders.com and setting up your free membership there. And if you've been receiving the weekly leadership guide for a while, and if you remember last week's episode, I mentioned that I now have the listener survey open for responses from you And I sent out a message last week. If you've already completed the listener survey, thank you so much. 
I read every single response that is sent in on the listener survey every time that I facilitate it. Uh, it's been about a year and a half since I've done a survey, and it is the time to really get feedback from you and to learn how I can best serve you going forward. So help me help you in uh, providing five minutes of feedback on the survey. It influences who gets invited on the show, the structure of the show, things that uh, I make decisions on going forward for our entire community. Uh, if you haven't already done it, you can complete the survey before this coming Friday, June 16th. And the URL for getting there is coachingforleaders.com slash survey. That's an easy one to remember. So again, coachingforleaders.com slash survey just takes about five minutes. Thank you so much in advance if you take a few minutes to do that. And again, thank you so much to all of you who have already taken time uh, to complete the survey to date. And I will be sharing the results here with our listening audience uh, in some way in the next couple of weeks once we analyze everything. So uh, I'll make sure to get feedback to you as well. So thank you in advance. And speaking of finding things online, lots of related episodes to today's conversation with Patrick Lencioni. Uh, back on episode 181, Ron Friedman was on the show talking about creating the best place to work. He has a book uh, by almost the same title. And Ron and I talked about some of the concepts we talked about in today's conversation. We also talked about interviewing and some best practices for interviewing. You'll hear a different perspective from Ron than you heard from Pat. I think both perspectives are really important for you to listen to, especially if you're doing a lot of hiring and attracting people to come into your organization. Uh, check out that episode number 181. Also in the past, episode 260, Detect and Eliminate Organizational Sabotage. I had uh, Bob Fritsch and Carrie Green on the show. They talked about their book, Simple Sabotage, and it's a fascinating book that is looking at uh, some, of the, uh, some of the documentation that the American government put together during World War II to distribute behind enemy lines in order to influence sympathizers uh, on how to affect change in organizations and in society. And it's a fascinating look at this guide to sabotage. And they have taken it and now looked at it of how organizational members, both intentionally, but most of the time, unintentionally sabotage organizations utilizing some of those tactics. It's fascinating. That's on episode 260, if you haven't heard it before. And then also a really valuable compliment to today's conversation is episode 282, how to motivate people. Dan Ariely was on the show talking about how to motivate folks in organizations. It ties in right with today's conversation on finding ideal team players. And we talked about what some of the key motivators are, how to structure them in organizations. Uh, Dan, if you don't know him, is probably one of the top behavioral economists in the world. And it's not all about money. In fact, it's very little about money. Money's just the starting point. It's not the ending point as it is for the conversation in a lot of organizations. So check out Dan Ariely's wisdom on episode 282. You can access any of those by just going to coachingforleaders.com slash the episode number. That will get you there. And on next week's episode, I am really excited to be able to feature the work of Kim Scott. She is the author of the new book, Radical Candor. And she's joining me next week to discuss how to both care personally as a leader and also to challenge people directly. She's developed an exciting model. She's got a new book out. It's getting a lot of traction. Heard some wonderful things about the book from our Academy members and have read it myself. I think you're going to find it to be a really valuable resource. So check that out next week. Thank you so much to all of you who have sent in feedback from episode 300 uh, on the interview that Tom Henschel did of me. I so appreciate it. I meant to uh, mention this on the end of the last episode. If you haven't already subscribed, 
to Tom's podcast, The Look and Sound of Leadership. Check it out on iTunes. It's a fabulous uh, compliment to this show. Thanks again, Tom, for that last week. And see you next week for Kim Scott. Take care.